stand by me. Let's protect this tree from the freeway misery. Who knows how the monster started to grow that way? Her parents are frightened, wish it would go away. But the taxes keep coming, they have to be spent on the big bull. And the tanks of cement Oh, stand by me Let's protect this tree From the freeway Mizzou. Well, hello uh, Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast uh, In this episode I'll be looking at uh, Some of the works of Aldo Leopold uh, We have just finished looking at with In some depth uh, A Sand County Almanac That's uh, Leopold's final work It's uh, his book that was actually published Posthumously, only a few days before he died, he actually got news that the book was going to be published. So, um, but we have a huge collection of his other writings in this Library of America volume of, of Leopold's work. Most people will will read San, a San Coney Almanac and probably nothing else, and, and I think that's that's fair. I think um, the vast majority of people out there probably you know aren't going to go that de- deep into. Although Leopold and Lester ecologists or they're interested in the history of environmental thought. But if you are interested in the history of environmental thought, I do think although Leopold's uh, life's work presents an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, way to survey the change uh, in thought, especially in the 1920s and 1930s into the 1940s. We actually are able to observe his, his changing attitudes. We're also able to observe where the roots, some of the very, very deep roots of some of the ideas we saw in a San County Almanac were. So as an individual in survey of one man's thought and how it evolves over time, uh, it's good. But it's also good as a, as a window into what kind of debates people were having in the decades after the conservation movement begins. You know, I think, you know, a lot of us. Uh, I guess lay people will, will like to say, well, it really begins maybe in the progressive era, right? And of course, Teddy Roosevelt is very well known for starting that, but it's also been criticized as being too much of a human-centered type of conservation. And of course, Leopold is seen as groundbreaking in his land ethic in saying that, no, we need a, a, a land center. We need to expand our ethical concerns to include that of the land, of animals, of, of, of nature, you know, whatever you want to put in the land ethic. You can be a sea ethic if you want. Um, so, but Le- Leopold starts his career at the time when these debates and these discussions were, were taking place and a time when the government was becoming interested in conservation. And I think looking a little bit at Leopold's biography might, uh, just the first few years of it, uh, you know, I always mean to do more biographical surveys in these episodes, and I, I never really fall through on that. But I don't know. I'll say a little bit about his early life. Um, so, uh, born 1887 in Iowa, uh, Leopold uh, gets his BS, his Bachelor's of Science, in 1908. Um, in 1909, a year later, he achieved his Master's in Forestry. Um, And three years later, in 1912, he becomes a forest supervisor in the Forest Service. So we see him, again, very early, like deep in the Progressive Era, Um, 1912. I guess Wilson's not even president yet, right? Um, That'd be in 1913. So he then, um, I guess Taft would be president at the time. uh, I'm feeling stupid for not knowing that right away. 
Anyways, uh, but this is in the early years of the f- of of really federal management and conservation and kind of federal leadership in these things. Um, and he's there, um, and he's going to work in various areas, primarily in the Southwest for much of his early career. Um, but I think what's important about Leopold as a writer is we see this in 1915, where he when he really starts beginning work on wildlife management. He also begins work on, on kind of popularizing and writing about wildlife management to the public, right? That's part of his job as work as a forest supervisor and working on the forest services to deliver to the public in various ways and interested parties, interested groups, what the U.S. government's position is on forest management. And he also is able to develop his ideas in a series of articles he writes. Um, and we're, we're going to have like, it's like 40 or 40 to 50 different essays that I'll be looking at over the next uh, three episodes that really articulate these these messages. Um, and he actually starts journals. One of these he starts is called Pinecone, um, uh, really dealing with his... Uh, well, actually, that comes from the, that's the New Mexico Game, Game Protection Movement's journal, magazine, and Leopold was was integral in founding that. So he was very much connected to movement cultures, I think. And some of these movement cultures were really uh, the movement cultures of, ga- of, of sportsmen, people who wanted to have wildlife and game management to preserve a steady supply of animals that can be hunted, right? And of course, a lot of modern ecologists kind of frown on that, right? We see the picture of Teddy Roosevelt in Africa hunting lions or whatever, and we think, oh, how disgusting. And you know, we now, if there's some image of some hunter who kills a lion on social media, that guy will be condemned and dexed and, uh, you know, have to hide in his hovel for, for the rest of his life. Um, but, you know, at, Leopold engaged with these people because the other people are, that are concerned with the forest and the health of the forest uh, because it's part of their life. It's a significant part of their life. But there's all sorts of class issues in the backdrop of all this that, I don't know if I'm going to dwell on that much, but I think we should think about, um, you know, in, especially when we want to and we're tempted to condemn the, the, the conservation movement in its early years for being a little bit too human-centric or, or, or focusing too much on the interests of certain groups of people and not the planet as a whole and not human society as a whole, right? Uh, you know, I don't think it's fair to condemn him for not being a social ecologist, yeah, that wasn't really out there um, yet. But, you know, it's also his job. That's part of engaging with these people and these groups is part of what he had to do in the forest um, as a forest supervisor. So anyways, with that, I guess, introduction out of the way, I think we can jump into some of the, the articles we have here. Um, this episode will cover, I think it's 19. Yeah, 19 different articles. I won't say a lot about all of these. I'll just kind of uh, highlight, give you some highlights of what's in here. Uh, but it covers 1917 to 1933. So a big chunk of Leopold's career. And as I took notes on this, I don't always take such detailed notes, but I sort of did here, um, at least making notes of, of where some of the stuff was published, taking notes of uh, some of the major themes in these different pieces. They're not all the same. Some are speeches. Uh, quite a few are journal articles or articles in popular magazines, uh, you know, about game, about nature, about forests. And some are ty- typescripts. Some are things he wrote that apparently, I don't know if they were, a st- you know, I guess if it was a speech, the editors here would have said it's a speech. Um, but often they're just jo- things he typed. Maybe he planned to write something on this or 
you know, just stuff that were in his papers, I guess, um, but maybe never got seen by the public until an anthology like this published them. So um, I do believe some of these are published for the first time uh, in this, this particular volume. Um, so the first we have is the address before the Albuquerque Rotary Club on presentation of the gold medal of the Permanent Wildlife Protection Fund. So it's just an award ceremony. Um, 1917. So this is early in his career. He's only been a forest supervisor for 15 years, and he's uh, talking to uh, wildlife protection fund. So these are these are people who are interested in, in preserving game. These are sportsmen largely. Um, uh, it's the, actually the New Mexico Game Protection Association, uh, which is the group he talks most about here, and he's praising. Um, now. There's a couple important things here. One is the right to, to land, the right, the people's right to the land. And I think that's a theme that runs throughout his work. And I think that's where a lot of his conflicts come is that land should be preserved and conserved and defended. Um, but it is public land. Right. And, and what does that mean? I, I think, you know, there are, you know, should public wildernesses mean no one should ever use it? Uh, I think there's a big, huge difference. Even now, I would agree, there's a huge difference between allowing a hunter into a national forest, you know, or hunters in with a certain degree of regulation and letting like an oil company in, right? Or letting a, a logging company in. Those are obviously very, very different things. But, uh, you know, at some point, they're both pretty destructive, it's, you know. But he's got a fundamental idea here that people do have a right to the land. He says the GPA, the Game Protection Association, ideal is to restore to every citizen his inalienable right to know and love the wild things of his native land. We conceive of these wild things as an integral part of our natural environment and are striving to protect, restore, and develop them, not as so many pounds of meat nor so many live things to shoot at, but as tremendous social assets, as a source of democratic and healthful recreation to the millions of today and the tens of millions of tomorrow. Um, so a lot to unpack there. Certainly, he's got a multi-generational view, but uh, and, and he's got the idea of a multiplicity of reasons to preserve nature um, and, and, and the land. He also talks here about the need for education, um, but he gets critical at the end, and I think that's important. So the, the way he gets a bit critical here is he, I mean, he talks about how we perceive of our environmental impact on places and how the individual impact and the collective impact are, are miles apart sometimes. Like, so he, he goes on about the mountain sheep, and, and they seem to be endangered um, at the time, or at risk, declining populations and all, and that's, of course, a big issue in the game management. That's, I mean, that's what it's about, um, is keeping these game animals with sufficient populations to, to be hunted for endless generations into the future. Um, but he talks about this collective impact, right? Like you may just take one a year, but when you have this many hunters or if you go, you know, if you harvest two a year, that impact is, is, you know, that much larger. And he, then he goes on to some detail about the fate of the mountain sheep in this area. So it, this article is both a kind of a praising of the organization, giving some philosophical positions about the right of these people to the land. Um, but then also getting to, to a bigger issue of sustainability. So this was types. This was found, I guess, in his papers as a typescript. I don't think there's any other record of this speech, um, you know, or if this was even given in quite the form that we see here. But it's what we got. 
Um, the next article here um, is called Boom Boomerangs, and it was published in Pinecones, which is that New Mexico um, game protection movement, the same kind of group that he just spoke to. This published in 1918, and I won't say much about it. Um, it's a really short piece. It's, it's really just a short little column. And it, but it really gets to the heart of the e ecology. And he talks about squirrels' relationship with, with predators and with humans, in a way. And he talks about the humans, who, the humans who complain about squirrels and the population of squirrels being too large, but then hunt the predators of the squirrels. They're, they're not seeing the big picture, frankly. And that's really the, the heart of this little piece. And he, so he's saying, don't so recklessly hunt the predators of of the squirrels and then complain about the squirrels being too many. Um, he does it in kind of a sarcastic way too, which I rather enjoy. Uh, a few sentences actually from the squirrel's point of view and having some empathy and, and kind of praise for the squirrel's you know, you know, ability to take advantage of the prejudice of the hunter against the, against the predator birds. Um, the third essay is called, uh, let me make sure I got the right title, I think. Yeah, it's called Wildlifers versus Game Farmers, A Plea for Democracy in Sport. So uh, one of the themes we saw in the speech he gave is, is reoccurring here. This was published in the Bulletin of the American Game Protective Association in April of 1919. Um, so it's, it's a call for action. It's an attempt to be a compromise. He's saying we need to... But, but this is we see even in a San County Almanac, the tension between those who see... Uh, the forests um, as a place for game farming. So game farming is simply the the harvesting of, of animals from the wild rather than raising domesticated livestock, of course. So literally farming, like getting a food supply via game, obviously not sustainable uh, in the modern world. It wasn't hunter-gatherer days, but it's not sustainable now at any wide uh, scale. Um, way i think that's that that has all sorts of issues in human rights and things too I, I mean i hear this all the time as a as a as a as a vegetarian people say like you know would you eat a hunted animal you know and actually i think i i might do that i think if i get my dream get like 200 acres out in the woods i, I could conceivably hunt an animal or two a year you know and essentially engage in game farming I just realized that's not that's not a solution to the ultimate problem of animal suffering and 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 food popula and and food and population and, and all those those ecological issues, um, but basically he's trying to find a compromise position between these two and he he puts forth various policies like you know obviously things we're aware of now like hunting seasons and closed seasons, um, uh, for instance. Uh, Free hunting of migratory waterfowl in intensely developed farm regions will follow the same course, but more slowly, um, meaning they'll disappear. Duck grounds on private lands will be artificially improved and leased. Ducking grounds on public lands will remain open. Um, free hunting out of upland game will, in intensely developed farming regions will gradually disappear. Farmers will breed and encourage game and lease their hunting privileges to clubs or individuals. So these kind of policy recommendations he gives at the end really are compromise positions. They're trying to manage different, different uh, the opinions of different people and different interests, which of course is something that has to be done in a democracy. Let's, let's not be uh, too shy about that that fact. Um, 
So the next little essay is called The Turkey Hunt in the Datal National Forest. This was published in 1919 in Wildlife Manager. And um, here he's talking about sportsmen. And, he, and his main argument here is that sportsmen need to have a place in wildlife management. Right? And I, I think we've seen this theme several times already. Even as late as the San County Almanac, he doesn't fully reject the role of, of, of sportsmen. Right? Um, actually, whenever I think of these sportsmen, I think of the of Westling Winds, the Robert Burns poem. And it was made into a great song, sung often by uh, Dick Goggin, a Scottish uh, a singer, folk singer. But that's a beautiful poem about just just a man walking with his sweetheart in the woods. But there's a few lines, there's a few, there's a stanza or two in there about it's all. Well, there's a lot about the birds here, but there's a stanza about the sportsmen's, right? And how, um, you know. The autumn arrives, and with it comes the sportsmen who harvest the year's crop of birds, and and the kind of the tragedy and the horror of it from the singer's point of view, or the poet's point of view. But anyways, it's something you know. Of course, Leopold has to deal with here, and he wants to work them into wildlife management. And this is kind of bad. Same thing he said when he talked about, you know, you have a right to the land in that very first speech you have a right to the land but we also have to be acknowledge our collective impact and and the unsustainability of what we're doing of our of our of our sport our sports not necessarily sustainable and he thinks a, a way to deal with this is to put the sportsman into wildlife management now i've known hunters i don't know how many have gone to wildlife management meetings i'm not and and, and obviously he's not saying that all these people who get a, a deer tag or a a license to hunt should go to some of these boring meetings about wildlife management. I, I'm just saying this. I don't know how widespread the interest in wildlife management and, and broader concerns of ecology are among sportsmen. I, I think some of them certainly have that, and, and some it's probably near and dear to the hearts of, of many of them. But, you know, what does this actually mean? I guess is my question. What does it actually mean to bring them into wildlife management? And he talks about them as part owners of the forest. And I would remind Leopold and his readers and the people he's talking to, yeah, we all are, even people who never go to those forests, they're national forests, right? And it, they're used mostly by a minority. The broader interest in the forest is, is much greater, right? So if 1% of the people use these forests as hunting grounds, they're the most conspicuous. They're the most. They're, they're having the most impact. Most of us probably never even go to these forests, not even as tourists, but we still have an interest in them uh, for the health of the ecology. You know, now we think about climate change and the and the health of the forests. All of these things are still are are part of the broader interest and. We got to make sure we're all part of that too. I, I think this almost. I, I see what Leopold's trying to do. He's trying to say. We're, you're having this collective impact. You need to be aware of these issues and you need to be part of the decision-making process You know, as part of a democracy and part of a, a significant part of the reason we have these forests and maintain them. I just think the 99% who don't conspicuously use the forests are still crucially tied to it and, and need to have them defended above and beyond the interests of, of the sportsmen. I guess that's my feeling. I am. But I don't know. I, I think, you know, these are these are how they're talking about a century ago, and obviously I think the current discussion is is different. So I'm not I'm not blaming Leopold here, 
for going at it this way. I'm just saying, you know, I think I don't quite agree in bringing the sportsman as somehow like an integral part of, of wildlife management. All right, next we have the wilderness and its place in forest recreational policy. Uh, this was published in, in 1921. And it basically deals with the problem of conservation, something he's been actually getting at. Like, once we use this, you know, how do, how do you conserve it once it's kind of opened up? Um, and here he talks mostly about timber. It says, timber conservation began 15 years ago with some vague premonitions of impending shortages now discernible in the recreational press. Timber conservations encountered the same general rebuttal of inexhaustible supplies, which recreational conservation will shortly encounter. After a period of milling and mulling, timber conservation established the principle that timber supplies are capable of qualitative as well as quantitative exhaustion, and that the existence of inexhaustible areas of trees did not necessarily ensure the supply of bridge timber, naval stores, or pulp. Um, but so I, I think part of the issue here, you know, I grew up in a paper town, Rothschild, Wisconsin, paper mill town. And, you know, when we were young, we were told, like, oh, that company, because it was like, it's not, it wasn't a factory town necessarily. There were many, it was many, it's a working class town, but it wasn't just a single factory town, but it was one of the big tax, you know, it was a big chunk of the tax revenue for Rothschild, an important uh, part of the economy. A lot of the good jobs, union jobs were there. But I remember hearing essentially propaganda from them uh, delivered to public school, you know, that sounded like, I don't quite remember how he got this, but this message was really stuck in my head. You know, we plant two trees for every one we cut down. And at the time, I just kind of ate it up. But I think I realize now why they do that. It's because they, if, if a tree takes how many years to grow to the point you can use it as paper for a paper company, let's say 20 years, 30 years, I don't know what it is. I'm sure different species, it's different. If you plant one for every two, it's because you... If you have 2% growth in your business every year, by the time that tree matures, you're going to need to to meet the demand that you now expect, right? It's not about restoring the forest. It's literally about maintaining a supply to be exploited and used long term. And if you ever see those forests that they plant, they're, they're farmed, they're farm forests. They're not, there's not wilderness, there's not really wildlife thriving in those areas anyways. So it's not in any way restoring wilderness. Anyway, Journal of Forestry, 1921. A good little essay, though, that really gets to the heart of the problem of, of conservation. Uh, next, we have a little piece that's just a manuscript. I don't know if it was, I don't think it was ever published or anything, just called Blue River. Um, just a, a personal reflection on some time on, on the Blue River. So, don't need to say much, just not even half a page. Um, the next one is also a manuscript. This one's dated June 1922, which is called Goose Music. And I like this piece. This piece I, I, is also a personal reflection, and it's not, you know, it was never published. Um, but it's really about the value of nature on its own terms. I think this is a, a theme that Leopold really stresses later in his writing. It's running throughout a San Coney Almanac. But... You know, he talks about the geese as having their own kind of autonomy, their own agency. It's, it's really like something you would read in the first part of a Sanconi Almanac. And he juxtaposes two things. He juxtaposes like the expansion of golf among like the middle class. 
And of course, that's pretty ecologically destructive. It's not a, a sustainable sport for the most part. Maybe, I mean, in Scotland it is maybe, but not as it's practiced in the United States. Um, but he kind of says, okay, we're expanding this, this form of recreation. But for those of us who find our recreation and our joy and our meaning in life and just living with nature and observing it, like that's being, that's being weakened over time, right? So not, he does get to the point that nature ultimately has to have to have to be respected for its values of its own. And that's where the goose music comes in, the, the, you know, the music of the geese. It's not something humans can really understand. They might be able to appreciate it, but they'll never really be able to have a relationship with it the way um, the geese do. But at the same time, the geese, that this geese music could be gone someday. And therefore we can't even appreciate it in our superficial way. So this is a kind of a really heartfelt manuscript. And I think it's a shame it wasn't reworked, like fine-tuned and published, but a nice manuscript, all written by hand. Um, mostly they're typescripts. Mostly the unpublished stuff here are typescripts, but, but this one happened to be a, a manuscript. All right, next we have uh, the essay, Some Fundamentals of Conservation in the Southwest. This was published in, uh, this is also a typescript, uh, March 23. Um, so this gets, this, this is a lot of, this seems like something he wrote to be published in a journal and maybe it was rejected or, or didn't get published for whatever reason because we don't have that version of it. But it starts out with a lot of technical questions about erosion, um, rainwater, aridity, a little bit about the history of, of, the, of the environment here. Um, which is all very useful stuff for environmental historians, I would say. But he moves from there to the moral issue, and I think this is something we see him... And that's the point I kind of want to make in this episode, I guess, is Aldo Leopold is so known for the land ethic and this moral approach to nature, and people sometimes think, well, he was in for... He was like, given too much of the sportsman early in his career. He, he was for advocating the hunting of predators, the, the eradication of predators, so he was kind of... A somewhat bad guy who, who turned good at the end, right? But I think he's always grappling with these issues. I, I don't think it's a sudden change late in his life. I don't think it's like a deathbed confession. Obviously, he you know he wasn't never on his deathbed, but I don't think it was that kind of thing. I think he was always grappling with this. And from very early in his writing, he has the, the, the land ethics there, essentially. It's there in some form. And you hear that, you see this here when he jumps, he talks about conservation as a moral issue. And he, he kind of makes the same argument he makes later on that about this expanding uh, circle of morality, right? Like how you, you, you have morality first for your family and your clan, then maybe your tribe. And then over time we learn to have, we, we, we see our connection to all of our nation, right? And we're willing to fight and die for the nation. And then we expand it to all humanity, right? And we create a human rights regimen to kind of defend that. You know, obviously that wasn't in place yet, but when this was written, it would be when San Colonial Almanac was written. And then you kind of can extend out to there to, to nature, right? But until you kind of get through these stages, it's hard to talk about conservation morally, right? The hunter-gatherer might be ecological, might be sustainable in what they do, but they're not thinking about it necessarily in moral terms. That I might disagree with, though. I think Murray Bookchin and the social ecologists would disagree with that, that view. Uh, in some sense, I think moral progress goes back in, in, the, in that sense. Um, 
All right, but that's a good one too. Um, nine or the the ninth one here. I numbered them in my notes. They're not numbered in the books. So if I drop a number, it's just because that's how they're numbered in my book or in my notes. Um, another TypeScript, 1923. I don't know what happened to these good essays. If they were, I suppose it's in the notes. The notes on text at the back of the book, but I'm not going to look them up for all these. Um, but again, another TypeScript, 1923, called A Critique of the Booster Spirit. And this essay is just what it sounds like. It's a critique of boosterism. And that's a big part of, of the development of the American West. If, if you haven't read a book I've already mentioned at least once in this series on Leopold, uh, William Cronin's Nature's Metropolis about Chicago, he talks about the boosters in Chicago and how Chicago was really promoted by the boosters and, and, and made up to be great. And that's why people came there. And, and it was not totally artificial. Its location had significance. But... You know, it was at least in part a creation of the booster spirit. Um, and boosterism continued. Every town, of course, still does this to a degree. It's like, we, we want this tourist industry. We want this conference center. This is why you should come here, right? Because it's tax revenue. It's, it's part of how you promote your city. It's, it becomes a com competitive thing. And in fact, I, I listened to, uh, uh, what's her, uh, Sassen's Sakai, or is it Sakai Sassen, the Dutch... Um, the Dutch, uh, I guess, sociologist, anthropologist, geographer, I don't know what she is, but she wrote about cities, right? She did the global cities thing. And she was talking about how mayors got confused because you, you go to New York, you go to Chicago, you go to LA, you go to Hamburg, you go to Shanghai. They all look kind of the same. So people thought all these cities are competing. Um, and in fact, she argues they're not. They're, they actually have different specializations. They just all look the same. It's like the same infrastructure the same superstructure, but the heart, the software is different, right? But mayors didn't really realize that. So when they want to attract businesses, they would always like lower the taxes, right? Free tax, no, no taxes for 20 years or whatever. You got to come here. And, and in fact, they had to come there because that's the only city that had this, this expertise they needed to do business, whatever business they wanted to do in that, you know, in that global city. It's a bit off topic here, but it's, it just reminds me that of, of, this booster is this competitive boosterism that that helped develop the American cities in the West. Maybe that same kind of competition, like I'll lower taxes. No, I'll lower the taxes even more, or I'll give you the right to dump your pollution in our river, you know. Or we got the best environment. No, we got the best environment. This kind of uh, this is part of the boosterism. Now, Leopold's issue with them is it basically comes down to some, another theme that comes up a lot in these essays, and that is economy versus conservation, right? And the idea that these are opposed, that you can't find an easy balance. You know, I just watched that disastrous debate between Biden and Trump. Um, probably by the time this episode is uploaded, you'll know who wins that election uh, or will be close to it. Um, but I watched that first debate and they're still talking in those terms. I mean, like, that was a disaster debate. It's, it was a mess, but... But, you know, when you do, could articulate some meaning out of those two people uh, and they talked about climate change, it was still like we can address climate change and actually, you know, expand the economy. Right. That's kind of some of the logic of the Green New Deal. Right. We're still in this eco like infinite growth model, but somehow we will make it green. I, I don't agree that you can do that. I think all the Leopold realizes that if you present your city or your town, wherever you're trying to boost as a paradise for sportsmen 
and the sportsmen come, don't be surprised when your, you know, your species, you, you have extinction, local extinction. Or don't be surprised when you have a war against predators there. You know, that's going to come from it. So it's, he's, I think he's being honest about this conflict. And I think too many people aren't honest about that. The conflict. I don't mean to say something like a Green New Deal couldn't create jobs. It certainly would. I just don't think an infant growth model is ever compatible. You, I don't think you can have it. You know, I don't really believe in green capitalism. I guess that's what I'm saying. Um, even if you gr- can somehow get our energy all renewable, if you keep needing more of it, right? That's that's not going to be sustainable either. Um, I mean, unless we have like some way of getting resources from some other planet. Um, anyways, next one, Pioneers and Gullies, um, 1924. This is a good essay for the environmental historians. It was published in Sunset Magazine in 1924. And it's basically uh, talking about the history of the relationship between pioneers in the West, in, in the, especially the area he's working, New Mexico in the Southwest, um, and the, what they did to the forests and the gullies. And then he kind of puts forward future policies that he thinks might have an effective way uh, that might effectively uh, deal with, especially erosion. Erosion is a big issue in this particular piece. The forests were destroyed that promoted erosion. And now generations later, we've got to deal with it. So. Just a reminder that what you do now is going to affect people later. It's going to be their mess to clean up. It's an externality. It's a generational externality, to be sure. Um, similarly, the next essay is called Grass, Brush, Timbers, and Fire in South Southern Arizona. Uh, this was published in the Journal of Forestry, also in October 1924, well, a few months after the, the piece on the gullies. Um, and this is really gets into the ecology of the brush of, of, of fires. And, you know, if we think about the 2020 fires in California or the previous year's fires in Australia, I guess that was their summer. So it would have been our winter uh, 2019 or was it the earlier year? Anyways, massive fires, unprecedented fires, seemingly connected to climate change, uh, but also poor forest man- management to a degree. So. You know, it's a mixture of causes. Certainly climate change is a big part of it and why we're facing these fires. Um, Leopold would not disagree. He sees human impact as the root cause of the disruption of these environments. And, and But he does a really good look here, I think, at the ecology of, of brush in, in Arizona, a dry area, right? Um, next, the river of the mother of God. This was another type script. Uh, dated December 1924. Um, here he asks a different question. And this is another thing. I think some of he's got some of his best ideas that apparently weren't published uh, until after he died. But he asks a wonderful question in this piece. And that is, should we keep the unknown? Right? And if you say, well, we want to preserve wilderness so we can enjoy it. Well, I think Leopold's asking the question, should we, should we keep some places unknown forever? From us is that part of should we also conserve that part? It's a kind of a it's philosophically I think interesting. I don't, I think many ecologists, especially the deep ecologists, would say yes, obviously, right? Nature's not there for human use, anyways, so it should be unknown because humans shouldn't touch it. Humans shouldn't have any impact on it at all, and the effect of that would be it being unknown to us, even to scientists. 
And I think it's a great question. I think he doesn't really have a good answer to it yet, how that would even be done. Does such a place exist now? I'm not convinced there are many places like that. But I really, really like the question. And I think it's it's a test, uh, something to confront the scientists with, I guess. I mean, not that scienti- scientists are, are bad ecologists. I just think they want to know all. They, they kind of want to explore the unknown. But a really great question, and, and told in, in kind of a more literary way. Um, what's next? 13, uh, Conserving the Covered Wagon. Uh, this was published in Sunset Magazine in 1928. I think this is, like, also just talking about conservation in kind of an interesting way, looking at, um, like, the history, the covered, like, the, the, the image, the metaphor of the covered wagon, I guess, is, is what makes this piece is rather striking. Um, because, of course, it's the covered wagon that, that disrupted the wilderness, at least from a white person's point of view. We're, we're kind of forgetting the Indians here in quite a lot of what I'm saying and, and a lot of what Leopold says about the wilderness. He's sort of ignoring indigenous people. Um, that's certainly something he's blinkered by. I, I don't remember in anything I read here, he really spends much time talking with the Indians as anything other than a throwaway. Um, but you got this kind of march of empire symbolized by the covered wagon and... And the idea of kind of memorializing and remembering that epoch of history and not conserving the things that they disrupted, I guess, is, is what he's getting at there. So it's kind of a... Leopold often writes this way where he, he kind of comes at it kind of ironically or obliquely and then gets to his point about, about nature. Um, the next one is called Pig in the Parlor. It's a short piece. It was published in the U.S. Forest Service. It's basically the U.S. Forest Service Service Bulletin. 1925 and this is just a question of roads um, and the need for roads and the question is like how many roads should we have per acres and all that so it's kind of a stupid boring thing but of course from the perspective of government and what they do it's important but I can imagine people not getting too much into this but even here he kind of gets into a little literary direct sense which I like Roads and wilderness are merely a case for the pig in the parlor. We now recognize that the pig is all right for bacon, which we all eat. But there's no doubt was a time soon after I discovered that many pigs meant much bacon when our ancestors assumed that because the pig was so useful, an institution should be welcomed at all times and places. And I suppose that the first enthusiast who raised the question of limiting his distribution was constructed to be uneconomical, visionary, and anti-pig. Uh, so true. So he's saying, we do we need, like, just because we can build more roads doesn't mean we should. Just because we have fewer roads than Germany. Yeah, this is compared. Like, Germany has more roads in its forests than we do, so we should build more. Well, why? So he, he's against building more roads. So I guess that's why it's here. It's significant that way. But it is, in the perspective of other things, a, a more technical question for the bureaucracy. Um, next, uh, wilderness as a form of land use. Uh, obviously, this is back to the question of should we should we even have wilderness? You know, can wilderness exist if humans are using it at all? Uh, I doubt that very much. I think even just the sportsmen disrupt it and make it no longer wilderness. I think I doubt there's any real wilderness on the planet anymore. Um, but Leopold doesn't go that far. He certainly thinks wilderness can be used, um, but to some degree sustainably. Um, but 
first he kind of establishes the the contribution of wilderness to the nation, which I think is is great. And and. and But he, what it gets to is like that we've had changing values about and change, about what wilderness could contribute and need over time. And again, I think I would love to hear what the indigenous people had to say about this whole whole, whole argument. But you know, it kind of moved from maybe a more direct need for wilderness for survival to the cultural value of the wilderness being a more modern idea, um, and it's got this evolution. But uh, whether it's for beauty and art and culture or for hunting or to be torn down to be turned into farms wilderness is being used and then where's at what point does it become no longer wilderness i guess is the question that's not really addressed here i don't think i think wilderness. the will i i don't know i mean even when you even if you acknowledge indigenous people having a more sustainable attitude towards nature i don't want to fall into the trap of the ecological indian though that because that itself is a racist trope but, you know, where, when did this ever exist? Um, Pre-human times, I guess. Even hunter-gatherers use nature. I mean, they, they had made the Neolithic transition, which was, of course, a, a changing relationship with nature. All right, next, Mr. Thompson's Wilderness, um, 1928. This was in the... This is another service bulletin. This is a nice cutting article about nature being preserved, a wilderness being preserved for the wealthy. And Mr. Thompson is just one of these wealthy guys. And he's saying, clearly, we should not be preserving wilderness, nature, forests for the use of a handful of elite people. It's just undemocratic. Leopold, at the end of the day, is interested, I think, very deeply in how a democracy can manage forests. Next one, uh, the American game policy in a nutshell. This was from a conference, a two-day conference in 1930. So this is from the transactions of the 17th American Game Conference. And his job there really was to just talk about game policy in a nutshell. And he gives different, you know, this is kind of repetitive at this point. Um, you know, what the policy is, what are the different interests that go into the making of the policy. Uh, the game farmers versus the conservationists versus the wildlifers. That's hinted at here. Um, now, the way he talks, though, he talks kind of on the side of the sportsman, like even using we sportsmen at times in this essay. But uh, his conclusion is this. Um, let me find it. Well, basically, it's the policy of game, con game conservation. And then he's trying to get the sportsmen on board on part of it. So this is an old trope of his, too. Like, get the sportsmen into the, into the conservation business. And I don't know how, that, how that's going to be done or how effective that would be. I don't know. Is that just letting the, the, the fox into the hen house? I don't know. I, I, I want to be optimistic about this. And I don't, I'm not a hunter. So if anyone out there is, I, you know, how concerned are you about... Environment. Maybe if you're listening to this podcast, you're more concerned than most. But I don't know enough about it. I'm just I'm just asking questions about about this. Um, next, we got uh, game and wildlife conservation. This was 1932, published in the Condor. I think that's another nature magazine, popular magazine. I think what's important here is he he is he's again trying to balance these different issues, and, and especially the sportsman seems to be the 
the most problematic and maybe one of the more politically powerful and influential groups. That that might be what it comes down to is that there were a powerful political lobby at the time. Um, and he does stand up to them here. He says, let it be, I no chance be inferred that because I speak as a sportsman, I defend the whole history of the sportsman movement. Hindsight shows that history contains any number of blunders, much bad ecology, and not a few actions which much be constructed as either stubbornness or hypocrisy. For every one of these, one could point out a counterpoint in the history of the protectionists. Only there has been no emergency committee with any means or the desire to compile, compile and advertise them. Fifteen years ago, for instance, I, the protectionists closed the prairie chicken in Iowa, and I sat calmly by while plow and cow pushed the species almost to the brink of oblivion. Was this a blunder? Yes, but what of it? Is there any human aspiration which ever scored a victory without losing to some extent its capacity for self-criticism? Uh, end quote. And so true, right? It's it's true in politics. It's true uh, in many areas of life. Um, and so we point out here that they, they fought for that, and the result was the near destruction of, of, of a species locally, something Leopold obviously doesn't like. Um, and the last one, the last uh, selection here is fairly long. It's about 18 pages. It's called game. It's called the history of ideas and game management, and it's from his book. He wrote one of the first textbooks, if not the first textbook on game management, and it was published in 1933. And this is a, a selection from that. And it's just as the title sounds, it it kind of traces the history of game management from the Romans. I mean, he goes back to well, actually goes back to Mosaic law and things like that, um, and then through the Romans to English common law and, and, and English law in the forests up into like, you know, I think it's a really good source on this. I think this stands up. If you want a history of game management, I think read this. I mean, it's well-researched and there's a lot of, uh, maybe you could fine tune it. I, this is the only thing I've ever read on the history of game management. I'm sure there are books and pu other publications to compare this with, but it seems to me to be a well-researched, deep historical look at, at how different societies, you know, with different values and different interests have have set policy for managing game. I mean, maybe the most common we think of is the, the not public, the royal forests in, in the Middle Ages and how people could be prosecuted for poaching on the land. But then there's also the idea of the commons, right? That, that you know, the, there is the, the compact of the forest which kind of goes along with the Magna Carta. Read Peter Leinbaugh's book on the Magna Carta called the Magna Carta Manifesto, which is a great window into how the Magna Carta kind of was joined with this charter of the forests, which provided like widows rights to use the forests. Um, so there's some acknowledgement that poaching is a moral right of the poor. Um, but then, you know, kings certainly were and that's what he talks mostly about here is about the elite. They certainly wanted to keep the population of the game. They wanted to manage the game for the use for, for royal hunting or for the aristocracy. Um, really good stuff here. And then he kind of, by the end, he gets to our own game law and our values of conservation. So I really like this survey. I think it's a great contribution. I'm glad it's included here, even though they didn't include the whole book, Game Management. So it's, I think they included a really good selection here. They, he, I think it was just one guy, 
Kurt Mein is the editor of this. We should give him more credit because he seems to have done a lot of work in the archives, in Aldo Leopold's papers, and, and choosing the from this selection. So that does it. That's the, the first 100 pages of this collection of, of assorted essays. Um, what I'm going to do is, so I just got a vacation starting. So it's National Day in China. I get eight days off. So I am going to, in, in, in quick succession, record the rest of my thoughts about Aldo Leopold um, over the next few days. Um, going through more two more episodes on these different essays up until his untimely death in 1948, then two essays on his journals, and then one looking at his letters. And we'll see. Um, but I'm going to do it quickly because I've already read through most of it, so I'll, I'll be able to do that. Uh, just need to take some notes. But I got the time now, and I'm glad I have the time to do this. It's been a rough few weeks with my missing cat, still missing. Rusty, come back to me, please. I miss you very much. Um, but, you know, Bassett, be with him if 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 he's out there and and on his own adventures. Um, but there was that, and then work beginning, and it's been a it's been a tough tough uh, month. Haven't got as much time for reading as I would like, but now I got a nice break, so I'm, I intend to finish through the Leopold series, do some more on the Lovecraft series, and and maybe even step into Aerosmith, which will be the next literary work I plan to look at. Sinclair Lewis's Aerosmith, um, which. You know, I was debating to start with Henry James or Lewis or Sinclair Lewis, but I think given COVID, Aerosmith is going to have to be. We're going to have to look at that. So that's it. If you don't get that, it's Aerosmith is it's about a doctor, but it's the central event, the climax of that novel is about uh, a plague. Um, all right, that's it. I'm a bit rambling now. So thanks so much for listening. I really had fun with this episode. I think. These are really fun to read, and I'm really enjoying following Leopold's career um, over over the first couple decades of it, and we'll see where he goes in the next two episodes during his last, the final decade of his career. So thanks for listening. Uh, thanks for supporting this podcast, and uh, send me your thoughts. You know how to do that, I think. Uh, but if you need my email, it's on my website. Now the men on um, the highways need yeah, those jobs we know. Let's put them to work planting new trees to grow Building new parks where the kids can play Pushing that semen monster away Oh, stand by me, let's protect this tree From the freeway misery There's a cement octopus sits in Sacramento